Hands hurt a little bit. Pride hurts a little bit. But I'm sure I'm gonna look back at this and say, this is pretty freaking awesome. Hi, my name is Mike and this is The Goods. The voice you just heard is Herman Demick, one of 24 athletes invited in secret to compete in the first ever Spartan Games. Now, you may be asking, what is a Spartan Games and who is Herman Demick? Well, here's a quick recap. Over four days in October 2020, 24 Olympians, NFL athletes, triathletes, elite crossfitters and more, all gathered in the mountains of Vermont to compete for $100,000. The 24 men and women battled in obstacle course racing, a freezing open water swim, a treacherous mountain bike trail ride, combat sports and more. In this series, we go behind the scenes of the Spartan Games and deconstruct our Herman Demick, a medical sales rep prepared for one of the most extreme fitness competitions on earth in just 72 hours. If you like this series, please pass it on. Sharing with a friend will help keep the goods ad free. You can find show notes, transcripts, and more at thisisthegoods.com. That website link again is thisisthegoods.com. Now all that said and done, let's do this. Please enjoy episode nine, part one with Herman Demick. Welcome to the show, Herman. It's so great to have you. Thank you so, so much. I appreciate you taking the time. For the audience's benefit, can you give us a bit of a background about yourself and, and what you do? So I lead two different lives. For the last 18, 19 years, I've been a uh, performance coach, strength coach here in the United States. Been running my own business now for almost 13, 14 years. It's called 3D Performance Training. But yet at the same time, I still would like to believe that I can compete on some level. So that's the kind of the athletic side. But then I also have a full-time medical surgical sales role with a company called Alcon. We're the world's leader in eye care. And I'm the, the account manager that covers almost all of East Tennessee. So any LASIK vision correction, cataract procedures, interocular lenses within the clinic and in the operating room, that's the medical sales side of what I do. Have you always considered yourself uh, an athlete? I know you've you had a background growing up in baseball. Can you tell us a little bit about that? So I grew up in Richmond, Virginia, and I played almost every mainstream sport that you can imagine here in the United States. So football, baseball, basketball, swimming, diving, gymnastics, indoor outdoor track. I played men's volleyball in high school. The only I think the only two sports that you could consider mainstream in different geographical parts of the United States would have been hockey or lacrosse. Mm. I never really got enough into that, but that's probably because I was too busy being on multiple swim teams, multiple baseball teams, and doing things all over the place. But ultimately, when it came down to it and I was going into college, I chose to uh, take a scholarship to Clemson, the number one team in the country during my recruiting process. So I took on the scholarship, played four years with them, finished in the College World Series with them in 2006, and then was drafted by the Philadelphia Phillies in 2006 and played 2006, 7, 8, and 9 with them before ultimately they said, hey, we're going to wish you well. Can you tell me a little bit about your off-season? Because I know you prepared in the off-season in a really, not an uncommon way, but differently to a lot of the other athletes. And I'm hoping you might be able to share a bit about that. That in itself is what started the need to create 3D performance. Back in 2004, while I was at Clemson, I was a sophomore, I really started to dive deeper into 
what sport performance was all about. So my undergraduate initially was biology. I wanted to be able to go to med school. So I already had some cellular training, but I was like, hey, how can I start helping my performance by the stuff I'm learning in school? And in 2004, as I started training a little bit more, I ended up being the NCAA strength athlete of the year, which basically just means that within your sport, you're also you're doing things exceptionally well within the weight room setting, which was really fun because they, even though there might've technically been some people that were either stronger or faster or whatever that looked like, it, you can't win the award unless you're actually good at your sport too. So mm. that actually was fun. You have to be a little of both. So then that started to piece its way into me doing different things during my off seasons. And then when I graduated uh, from Clemson, I was drafted by the Phillies. I would show up to spring training or whatever it looked like. And I was in better shape physically than most everyone else. And I was better prepared for the season. So all of these professional athletes would then start to follow me back to my home during the four or five month off season. And they were like, well, Hey, can we just do whatever you're doing? So I would end up training myself because at this stage, I'm technically, I'm starting a business because it created a market for itself or a niche for itself. But then I'm still the professional athlete being paid to play baseball for a living. So I would wake up early in the morning, I would train myself, take all my, you know, batting practice, take my ground balls, do my, my long toss things I need, and then also train in the weight room. And then the rest of the day, I'd spend training professional athletes because they would follow me back. So technically, all these guys, they would sleep in and let me get all my stuff done up until noon. I'd be up at like 4.35 o'clock in the morning. I'd go train for six, seven, eight hours. And then that afternoon, I would just train people the rest of the day. And then they would show up to spring training and they're like, hey, this guy's doing something really different. Like it's not the same. So that's technically how 3D performance started and how we started to grow. And for those that don't know baseball, how important is strength and conditioning to the sport of baseball? So I think what's unique about the game of baseball that's different about many other sports um, is it's not the strongest guy. It's not the fastest guy. It's not always the tallest guy that wins. Like I hate to break it to people, but Hey, if you play basketball, right, if you're really short, you're probably not going to beat the really tall guy. Or if you're playing American football, if you're not the fastest or the strongest guy, you're probably going to lose. Now, uh, of course you can be better at your technique. You can do some things, but still usually the stronger, faster guys win or the stronger, faster teams win. In baseball, it's very much skill-oriented, and being able to re-ingrain certain movement patterns, but the adding of the strength and conditioning is only helping to increase or improve the consistency of the athletes that are doing baseball-related movers. Mm. Um, so if you can manage to become super proficient in your sport and then also get a little bit stronger, a little bit faster, and keep yourself from getting injured, you're way more valuable to your team. And what is the focus of strength and conditioning on baseball? Is it mostly in injury pre prevention? Is it efficiency? What would you say is the, the biggest carry over there? So I, I like to use the analogy that, and this is my philosophy, right? I don't necessarily think there's always the perfect answer for every sport. We all have our own theories. We all have our own philosophies. But What's, again, unique about baseball is you play a power sport, but you play a marathon season. You're playing 162 games over the course of six months, and you basically get one day off every 15 days. 
Like wow. it, it really beats you up, but yet you're still expected to play a sport where you have to be super fast and super explosive in individual movements. With baseball, I like to say that we're creating functional meatheads because <laughs> what we really, right? What we really want to be able to do is have somebody who's, who can move extremely functionally and biomechanically efficient and be able to do their skill, whether it's hitting or throwing or fielding or catching, whatever that looks like and help themselves stay injury free because the season is so long. If you miss, you know, two months, you're missing like 60 games. Yeah. That's a lot. You know, right? like that's, that's a massive that's a chunk lot. of the season. That's a massive chunk. But then on the flip side, you can be able to prevent injury really well. You can keep yourself highly functioning and, or maybe biomechanically efficient, but if you're really weak, you're not going to do anyone any good. Mm. So there's that guy that never gets hurt, but he's not any good at his sport. So you have to be really strong. You have to be really powerful, but at the same time, you've got to be able to repeat those movements over and over and over again. Yeah. And in all of this as well, when did you actually make the official transition from athlete to coach? Because forgive me if I'm uh, incorrect here, but did you coach at Clemson as well? So it's, it's a, my story is really odd. So the, yes, I did coach at Clemson. So I was, I finished my playing career in June of 2006 with Clemson. I was drafted by the Philadelphia Phillies in June of 2006. So my very first professional season, technically the way it works in baseball in, in the United States is your first rookie season, you play an abbreviated season. So instead of playing from April to September, what we did was you get drafted, you finish your college season or your high school season, and then you play June, July, August, and part of September. So you play a shortened season as your rookie year. And then I came back after my rookie season to Clemson, which is where I played. And that's where the athletes started to follow me back. And I got there and it just so happened that the strength staff at Clemson for football and for their Olympic sports had a graduate assistant spot that was open for one semester because a football player who was finishing in the NFL about to retire and they were going to come take that graduate assistant spot in the spring. So they had an allotment of money that they could pay someone to be a graduate assistant for one semester. And that was the only semester I could ever do it. And you were just so there worked, at the right time, right moment, right skill set. Right time, right moment. And, and they knew that I was going to be a great ambassador of the university. That's where I played. And people knew what I had done there. It was one of those things where not only was I decent on the field, but I was also most dedicated on the team all four years. So they knew that my commitment level to what was necessary and I was going to represent things well. And they also had the Iron Tiger the athletic department's version of the fittest athlete was part of the Clemson baseball's version of the Omaha challenge, which is where the national championship is held. And they would title the iron tiger, the fittest person in the entire athletic department. And I won that all four years. Wow. So and what was uh, that test? How did that actually come together? Was it a multi-domain thing or? So a multi-domain thing that the coaches would put together every year and they would say, okay, we're going to, we'll put in a, two and a half mile run for time. And then the next one might be like max pull-ups for reps. And then they might say, okay, we're going to do like agility drills and cone drills and, and time you. And then there was one where it's like, they strap on your body weight 
onto a sled and you've got to drag this sled like 400 meters for time. Like it's wow. something just terrible. And it's a week long event and it finishes the fall semester before you go home for that Thanksgiving holiday, you know, break. Oh, so you get a nice uh, meal really at the end of it all. Yeah. That was my introduction to competing on fitness, but yet I was still, it was a team building activity is really all it was. Yeah. Fantastic. And can you tell me more about that graduate job? What were the things that you learned in that role that set you up for the, the later work that you did throughout your career? I didn't realize this, but if anybody's in the strength world, you've heard of Louis Simmons and Westside Barbell. Yeah, totally. Right? I mean, they, everybody knows that name. Joey Batson, who was the director of strength back sometime late 90s, he took over as the director of strength at Clemson. He is still the director there to this day with the multiple national championships under his belt now. And I didn't realize that what I grew up doing and the programs that I saw were conjugate method systems. Mm. And they were Louis Simmons derived. And in fact, there's a there's a documentary on Louis on Netflix, I think, or maybe Prime. And Joey Batson is in it. It actually shows him. And I didn't realize how it shaped my thought process on how in a generic week from programming, you might have a maximal effort pull, you know, maybe a, a pull-up deadlift, whatever, on like a, a Monday. And then maybe a Tuesday, it might be a max effort press. Um, a bench or a squat or something else. And then 72 hours later, so then that Thursday, Friday would be like a dynamic speed effort. Mm. And you start to get these maximal efforts. And it doesn't necessarily mean maximum weight. It just means maximal effort. So you might find the heaviest eight you can do, or you might find the heaviest five you can do on a Monday or Tuesday. And then you might have eight sets of three dynamic with bands or chains or something on a Thursday or Friday to pair that off. And then Again, what Louis preaches is it's not really the core lifts that make you that much better. It's the accessory pieces. Mm. And then that's where I saw Joey Batson program all these things in and it really shaped the way I thought. And I didn't realize that as I started programming out, I was obviously taking from some of my past and then understanding my past was leading back to conjugate. Mm. Uh, And that's how a lot of our programs are set even to this day. And is conjugate, sorry, it's a very awkward word to pronounce. Can you just describe what that is? Absolutely. So you got to understand where West Side systems or where conjugate systems originated. In Europe, where they started, it was the maximal effort, not necessarily the maximal weight. Mm. Really, it was just finding a max in whatever it is. And then 72 hours later, 30 to 50, 60%. So it's a much lighter version of what you might have done, or maybe a a much lighter version of relative to your one rep max. It's very fast and Mm. very explosive. So you might pair some of those days with some extra box jumps or banded jumps, or maybe we find a heavy five or six back squat on a Monday. Then on that Thursday, we might turn right back around and go eight sets of three at the minute, maybe every 60 to 90 seconds, eight sets of three with 30% of your one RM on the bar plus another 20 to 30% in band tension. And you'll repeat another eight sets of three on back squat and really see how quickly you can move the bar. Mm. So it's more of a neural adaptation and getting your body to move as fast as you can get it to move to make sure that you're not just training 
the muscular system, but you're also training the nervous system to react the way that you want it to. That's actually a really interesting point. Like how a lot of people think about training, they think about muscles and they think about getting bigger, stronger, all that kind of stuff. But how important is CNS training to being an athlete? So it's funny you asked that question because I, I literally just presented at a national conference down in Orlando, Florida this past weekend on neural and muscular adaptations to high load and high speed training. So you literally just asked the question that I had an entire presentation on. So I'm going to try and condense that hour-long presentation into about 30 seconds. So I like to use the rule of 90%. Okay, Your fast twitch, your type 2 B fibers have the greatest capacity for power output and strength relative to your type 1 fibers that are very slow twitch. But if you can add loads or you can move loads at approximately 90% or greater of your 1RM, you can actually activate these high threshold muscle fibers and not just increase cross-sectional area or get more muscle mass, but you can also tell the brain that, yes, it's okay. We need to activate these fibers in order to move these loads or in order to run this fast. And another analogy or maybe representation I, I like to use is if you constantly do lightweights and high reps on things, that's like having an amazing amplifier for your speaker system or your stereo system, but you turn the volume up to like level two. You have a great capacity to do things, but you're only using a little bit of the muscle or capability you have because your nervous system really isn't turned on. When you add high loads or high speeds to your training at approximately 90% or greater, that's like taking your engine or that speaker system and cranking the volume all the way to max. Mm. Now you're literally taking every bit of energy you can produce and your brain is telling your body you need to move it at maximal effort with every bit of muscle fiber you have. This is where our nervous system comes into play. That's the grandmother that lifts the car off the baby or the dog. We've all heard that story where the adrenaline rush hits. Our weight training and our strength training and our speed training is designed to tell your body that, yes, you're okay. You can do that. It's mm. telling your body that you can turn off these safety mechanisms and you can actually do these weights or these speeds and not get hurt doing it. But you have to, over the course of time, progressively, slowly overload the system so that your tendons, your connective tissue, your muscle fibers can actually handle those loads. And that's where it's that give and take of saying, how hard do we push now? What kind of time do we have to spend broadening the base before you start building for overall performance? Yeah. And how important is that 72 hour window between one training stimulus type and another? Without getting too deep into the literature, uh, I'll be honest, I'm just a nerd. Like, like that's, <laughs> that's okay. This is the kind of stuff that, that I enjoy. That 72 hour window in the literature, pretty much the easiest way to say it is that's been shown to be the most effective time window, not just for overall results, but for the ability to train more often. Mm -hmm. Hey, you probably could wait a little bit longer than the 72 hours, but then if you wait longer than that 72 hours before you do that again, then you're prolonging when you can do another maximal effort again, mm -hmm. because in order to get stronger, you have to get more muscle, but in order to get more muscle, you have to train more often. 
So it's that double-edged sword of how hard can I train, how well can I recover, and then come back and do it again. Some people say, hey, there's no such thing as overtraining, but there's definitely such a thing as under-recovering, and you can only train as hard as you can recover. Yeah, the way that you describe the baseball season, it's a marathon that goes for a very long time. The games themselves are quite a long duration, but then you also have a lot of moments where athletes are required to do explosive movements and spontaneously call on that as needed. Is there a particular timeline that training needs to occur around the season to make sure that an athlete is training and recovering effectively? And how do you like combine that strength and conditioning with the events where the athletes actually have to compete? So I think the answer to that is, is too complicated Yeah. because the sport is too complicated. So if you have soccer or football, I, I, I don't know, it, in Australia, is it called soccer or football? Uh, we've got soccer and then we've got uh, NRL, uh, AFL and rugby union. <laughs> okay. So you still call it soccer. Let's just say you've got a soccer team and the majority of those players are all on the field for of the 90 minutes, the majority of the players, unless they're being subbed, they're going to play 70 plus minutes. So if that's the case, then you can actually recover or train your team as a collective group. But in baseball, you're going to have a pitcher who might throw a hundred plus pitches mm. and you might have a catcher who catches over the course of that entire game, every pitch that was thrown. And those guys are absolutely bonkers fatigued. And then you've got somebody who is standing out at third base or center field, and they might have had to run hard or do something hard five times in three hours. Mm. So how it's too hard to create a program that's for an entire team. That's where it gets really complicated with baseball is understanding the need for each individual person and what their role is on the team. The answer can be simple, but it's – at the same time, it's very complicated if you look at it from, from a blimp view and say, mm -hmm. hey, I've got to just give one program. It doesn't work that way. You have to be able to find the need for individual athletes. And then it's such a long season that some people have aches and pains one place and you've got to make constant adjustments based on what that need is. It does sound like a way more complicated sport. And when you start thinking about catches, that reminds me of pitches that remind me of the Australian cricketers that have uh -huh. an overarm toss. Yeah. And I can imagine the whole shoulder kind of region might need strength and conditioning to remove the risk of injury, or perhaps it's elbows or wrists or something, because those people that compete really can throw a baseball fast. And can you imagine if the people that were throwing baseballs really fast had to throw a cricket ball? Oh my, you'd have people literally dead a, a, a cricket ball is so hard. But the other thing too is like cricket though, you could have a game that lasts for what, like three days? Yeah, five days I think is a test match. Yeah, it's they just last forever. But again, the pitcher in cricket might have a different training program than somebody else that plays somewhere else. And maybe this is a great segue then into why you started 3D. Can you tell us a bit more about that? So... I, I got to a spot where I knew this is something that I enjoyed and I knew it was something that at that stage, I was like, it's created a market and people are willing to pay for this. Yeah. So I was like, Hey, let's do this. But the more I find out and the more I'm in, you know, the fitness community, the more I'm in the strength world, which will tell more of my story down the road. And maybe even later on in the show is then we got to a point to where in the private sector, there can be people 
that are willing to, to pay for it. But it gets to a point to where because there's so few barriers to entry to get into this market, you can go take a weekend seminar and you got a certification, you can go train people. Mm. So that's where it becomes a little bit different because now everyone wants the knowledge that we as tenured strength coaches might have, but no one's really willing to pay for it. Mm. So it so the, initially it started as like, hey, like I'm single, I don't have kids, I'm trying to play a professional sport for a living. But then you start realizing that it's a grind and yeah. being a strength coach is really hard and you really have to love it. Yeah. And what are the biggest challenges that shows up for you? And I'm curious as well, what kind of athletes do you work with now? So we started in the elite professional athlete and, and it started that way because at the time, that's what I was. So the only time I could ever train anyone was during the professional off season. So it just started as the professional player. I had a five-year-old elite gymnast who went on to be a coach at Michigan. I've had a, as old as like a 90-year-old's Parkinson's patient. But 3D as a whole, we specialize in the elite and the professional athlete. Now, that also was not just because that's what the market was, but that was really the only thing I was allowed to do. Hmm. And I'll explain that because Technically, from the time it started, you know, 2007, 2008, I was either playing professionally or by 2009, when I was done, I was hired on as uh, the assistant director of athletic performance at the University of Tennessee. Mm. So now I'm under NCAA jurisdiction where if I would train anyone who was not already at a professional setting, if they were an amateur athlete, if they were a high school athlete. That was a recruiting violation. I could lose oh, my okay. job at the university, and that particular player could potentially lose their NCAA eligibility in being allowed to play college sports. So I continued through 2016 not being able to coach anyone who was anything other than a professional athlete because I basically was running my own business during you know off work hours or hired to train collegiate athletes at a large BCS institution. So I got to a point to where, hey, that's all I could do. Now it's Major League Baseball, NFL, PGA Tour, professional tennis, various Olympic athletes, both you know winter and, and summer. But then by 2016, when I left the University of Tennessee and took on my, uh, I didn't want to leave the university, but I knew that I could technically go to a retail shop and go sell drones in a mall and go take care of my family better than I could working for an NCAA BCS division one school. Mm. So I, I didn't want to leave, but honestly, that's, that was my only option knowing that my priority in life was my family. Mm. It sounds like, there's a lot of barriers when you're a strength and conditioning coach at a facility like that. You can't really offer your services to a range of athletes, not being able to train a lot of the professionals from other teams because there'll be a natural conflict between your team and their competition. What are the things that you've learned over your career that you consistently apply? So I'm going to answer this a, a couple different ways. Number one is we don't necessarily follow any one system. We take every potential theory in training and see how it can apply to an individual athlete. So even though we may have some conjugate foundation in a lot of our programming, doesn't mean everybody follows that either. And then I'll, I'll also say that 
I think one of the things that makes us extremely unique, and this is our brand, 3D performance, is, hey, can we kind of merge science, application, and real-world experience? Some people that are very academic, and they know the textbook in and out. They can spit out every cellular bit of data, every statistic, but they can't communicate. Mm. And they can't find a way to simplify what they know to make the athlete better. Then there are some people that know none of the textbook, but they have been a professional athlete or they have been exposed to training or they've watched other people. So they know what to do because they've seen it done or they were the athlete and it was done on them. Just because a training program works for them as an athlete doesn't mean it will work for their clients if they choose to go into it. We all are made up differently, so we're all going to respond differently to certain stimulus. Then there's also the idea of anecdotal evidence and real-world application in that we technically have the science. On paper, I'm a biomechanist, right? I'm a nerd. So like all I ever did was like the marker systems and 3D kinematics and ground force plates, and you start to understand data. But at the same time, we've got athletes that have competed on the international level. One of my coaches right now, he was with me dating all the way back to 2014, and he was recently hired on by the Los Angeles Dodgers. One of our other coaches is now actually stationed in Germany because he's now training the uh, U.S. Special Forces overseas. My current lead coach right now, Christian Montoya, he was a college soccer player, but he's a CrossFit Games athlete. And yet his background after college was, you know, he competed in Olympic weightlifting. Ursula at a Texas barbell was one of his coaches and his training partner was Chad Vaughn, an Olympic medalist. And then my wife is one of our coaches, Blair, and she was a two-sport Division One athlete in college, ended up having ankle reconstruction while she was doing her rehab. She was like, I'm going to do a study abroad, and she goes to Macquarie Uni in Sydney. And so then she technically completed her entire you know, college career as a uh, basketball player in Australia, only to then play professionally in Australia. So a- as far as the foundational principles, number one, we don't follow any one particular training philosophy. It's what training philosophy will elicit the best result for each individual athlete. Then we as a collective staff can literally tie together science, application, and real-world experience. And the final principle is that we're not going to reinvent the wheel. What we really do is take very simple things, use science to back us up, how does functional anatomy work, and then how can we get a set of muscles or tendons or ligaments to work simultaneously to get the desired sports result. So don't reinvent the wheel, stay simple, but execute it to 100% of your ability, tie together uh, science application, real world experience, and then just make sure that our programming isn't any one philosophy. It's all of them. It sounds like you've got that blend of science and experience coming together and You've also mentioned like a range of coaches that you've got that have very deep and specific experience in particular sports, but they're all very different coming together on your coaching staff. And I imagine like there's a lot of information exchange where you might know a whole bunch about a topic, but Blair might know something very deep about something else. And I'm curious how you all work together to design programming 
Well, the, the fun part is we don't have to rely on any one person. Not only do we work together, but we're all actually really good friends. There's no sense of pride. Like, hey, my stuff is better than yours versus better than yours. It's like, hey, if this athlete or this group of athletes gets better, then we collectively get better. And the other thing too is as the owner of the company, the last thing I want to do is surround myself with five of me. That doesn't force me to grow. That doesn't force me to get better. Any successful person surrounds themselves with smarter people. And all I want to do is find great human beings. First off, I want to find a great human that is just compassionate and can empathize and can relate to people and deliver a message. Hmm. Um, then we find what the experience looks like and how that may piece together certain things that we as a company are missing. A lot of times we'll come in and we'll say, hey, you know what? This athlete just isn't responding. What do you guys think? And then we'll just start roundtabling. And one of the things that Christian is really good with, a part of his Titleist Performance Institute, so he plays a lot of golf, but he also works with a lot of golfers too. So he has the ability to work with a rotational athlete and then know what type of metrics are going to matter just for a golfer. And then mm -hmm. my wife, for instance, she was the basketball player and she's really good with footwork and she's really good with lateral change in direction. Sometimes it's where can you relate to different athletes? And, and then you might find somebody that can deliver a message really well. And then you might find somebody that actually has the knowledge that you need. So you take the person that has the knowledge you need, teach the person that delivers the message and then have the person deliver the message to the athlete. Yeah. So it's like combining different skill sets and different domains together to get uh, a result that's really beneficial to that end athlete. Can strength and conditioning training and these kind of methods help those people that are just trying to get a better range of motion or trying to like, you know, be able to like hold their grandchildren. So now that we're no longer just the elite athlete, now we have three categories of people that we work with the professional athlete, those people that are paid to play their sport, or we'll even consider our college athletes who are paid in scholarship money for their athletic ability. Then we have our aspiring elite, which would be, hey, that high school athlete that ultimately has division one college or professional aspirations. One of our athletes right now, he's a freshman in high school and he just committed to play at the University of Georgia, who's the number two team in the country. He falls under the aspiring elite where he is not paid yet to play his sport, but he does have those aspirations to be at that next level. And he's going to train as if he is a professional with the given time that he has around school, academics, and his sport. And then we also have performance lifestyle. So these are people that they might be you know, an ex-athlete or they might be a young professional. They, they could be a mom or a dad, but they're willing to dedicate their lives as if they technically were a professional with their given amount of time. I understand that there's different commitment levels. I understand as being a parent now, it, it changes, but they're willing to invest in their foods. If they're willing to invest in their sleep habits, if they're willing to invest the effort level it would take on the physical side, then yes, we're still going to treat you. We're going to do your metabolic profiling. We're going to do some VO2s. We might even do some blood lactate work. We're going to assign if you need a, a dietitian. We're going to still pre prepare you as if you are a professional, even if you're not currently paid anymore to play that sport. So it doesn't matter who we work with, we're still going to hold the expectations as if you were that elite person. 
we don't take anyone on without doing full-on assessments. And when I say assessments, that's movement quality, like see if they're predisposed to any injuries. What is their movement like? What key performance indicators can we pull from based on the goal from training with us? So we might have somebody come in and they say, hey, they want to get really good at lifting weights. Well, then some of our tests are going to be revolved around strength. But if somebody comes in and is like, hey, I really want to be a good 10K runner, or I want to be doing really good in some endurance events, then it might be more important for us to test metabolically what they're going to look like in a cardiovascular state. So we're going to start testing around the goal that they need. And then ultimately for that hour or two hours that an athlete or client is with us, they don't have a choice. They're going to give every bit of effort that we ask of them. But it's not what they do with us that makes the biggest difference. It's what they do with the other 22 to 23 hours a day when they're not with us. Mm. So it's very educational on our end on making sure that they're preparing for their sleep. They're eating the right foods. They're uh, doing the right tissue management at home, whether that's with a Theragun, with a Compex unit, so that they can do the things necessary at home so that when they come in with us, we can be more effective during that hour or two that they're with us. Yeah, because you can't really control everything right like there's a variable of what the athlete does when they're alone when they're not in the weight room or in the facility with you in the same space given that you've got these different athletes and you measure against these different performance types and these different events that they're training for have you found any exercises that just carry over across all athletes that you would just throw in as a staple it could be piece of equipment, exercise, or anything that just makes a big difference, regardless of who you are? Like I said, we stick to foundations as the starting point. Before we get crazy, before we get specific with all of these funky things that can be done, you still have to ask yourself, can this human squat, deadlift, bench press, pull up? Very basic things. Can these people perform these correctly? And under load. Mm. And then if they can start building these things correctly and be under load, well, now we can start branching off and saying, how do we improve regular movement? So it was like, oh, hey, I want to, you know, be able to, I want a strong core. And everybody thinks strong core just means you got to have a six pack. Some of the strongest cores on the planet, you can't see a single ab, but that doesn't matter because they can hold loads and they can hold the rigidity of their spine in all scenarios. If you're not holding yourself tight, well, then your core is gonna get really weak and you're just gonna get hurt. So you're gonna, you're gonna learn basic movements and then you can always branch off from there. That's the end of part one of episode nine. In part two of this series, we deconstruct how Herman prepares for the Spartan Games in just 72 hours. The good news is part two is live now so you can continue the story my name is Mike and this is The Goods. Thanks for listening.